Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the 46th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. So um, got a pretty packed show for you today where we're going to you know, discuss again things that are going on um, in the news and current events from the week, then move on to uh, tweets and research that caught our eyes from the week, and then moving on to financial planning topic of the week. And then we actually have three questions this week, Matt. So we'll get into those. I love that. Love it too. So, and uh, listeners, keep them coming. Yeah, keep them coming. So as always, we'll start by just taking the few, first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 12th, and this data is from Coifin. So the S&P 500 index down 1.45% for the month and down 11.07% for the year. The Dow down 2.39% for the month and down 16.58% for the year. The NASDAQ positive 1.42% for the month and up 0.49% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 2.56% for the month and down 23.36% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States down 0.58% for the month and down 19.39% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.13%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.16%, and the 10-year yield sitting at 0.67%. Um, so moving on, obviously these phased reopening um, across states, Matt, is going to continue to move on over the next several weeks. And here in Ohio, I know that yesterday on Tuesday the 12th, uh, retail opened up. Again, and then this Friday, bars and restaurants that have outdoor seating can open up. And then I believe next Tuesday is when indoor seating can open up. Correct. Obviously going to be at limited capacity to account for the six feet apart uh, tables and, you know, standing room and that type of thing. But so we're working towards, um, I think, something that's positive, in my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, this has to happen, in my opinion, as well. You got to start reopening things. So you know, to kind of remind listeners, let's go over, in our opinion, the eight things that we feel the market is going to be monitoring and kind of pegging its value and performance off of in the near term. Mm -hmm. Okay. So last week, listeners, we listed out eight things that we said that, uh, in our opinion, the market was going to be continually analyzing. So I would like to go through those, Mark, and let listeners kind of rehear those. So I'll start off. So first, how successful or not antiviral drugs will be in driving the mortality rates lower? Now, you've been saying for a while, and I absolutely agree with you, that you know we need some sort of a, a therapy um, that if someone does become ill, that you know they're not going to die. Right. Something that people you know can get 
confidently or they know confidently that, you know, they can resume their normal lives. And if they get it, they can effectively get treated. Um, and it doesn't have to be the vaccine, but, you know, 98, 99% effectiveness in, in treatment, I think, Make, would provide a lot of confidence. Makes complete sense to me. So the second thing is, will states open up quick enough to preserve jobs and small businesses? This is a biggie, you know, because it's a double-edged sword right now. You know, the longer you wait, you know, you are hurting the ability for small business owners to operate. You know, they're still paying health insurance premiums. They're paying rent. You know, it's just beyond the payroll. And so, you know, there's there's a there's an issue with that. Yeah, I listened to um, a podcast uh, of a guy that owned a restaurant, and he said that he's doing out in L.A. L.A. Remember um, that he is doing ten to fifteen percent of the business that they normally do. So that is not sustainable. No, no. You know, um, so you know, with again, with you know, the rent costs in L.A. and that type of thing. You know, we need to start reopening this stuff because they're just not going to be able to survive if we don't. I agree. Uh, third is, will opening states have to close down again? And if so, for how long? For how long will these high levels of unemployment rates remain? I'm going to be covering that here in a second with my tweets and research. Um, next, will we have a second wave of COVID this fall winter? If so, how bad? Six, how will consumers and businesses spend the rest of the year? Seven, how long will it take to develop a vaccine? And eight, when does the market turn its focus back to the presidential election? All good questions. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. And so listeners, I think this is good to list these out for you because at the end of the day, this is what Mark and I think the market is going to be focused on. And with that being said, these these questions are important to continue to kind of watch, right? Yeah. And, you know, usually around this time, you know, they're, we're pretty in full force and election cycle and, you know, in the news and everything. And we've heard crickets about that. Absolutely. You know, for the past, past couple of months. So it'll be interesting when the focus does come back to that. Yeah. Um, another kind of topic on uh, market kind of update for listeners, uh, Mark, is in regards to, say, unemployment. So the jobs report came out for April um, last week, and the number was huge. It was 20 million. And so leading into this, when I prepared my talking points for the podcast, the estimates earlier in the week were about a job loss number, headline figure mark, of about 7 million. Mm -hmm. So think about how much that accelerated as people were updating their figures. Right. And the end number came in at 20. Yeah. And I don't mean this in a heartless way, but do you think that it was so underestimated because they didn't account for, you know, people wanting to remain on unemployment or get on unemployment because they would actually be making more than, you know, what they would be making at a job or at their current job? No, Mark, I think it's a valid point and it has to be thrown out there because at the end of the day, that's a fact. Right. And there is right. a subsection of the population that is making more by not working yeah and yeah. so um i think that that's a risk for that subsection of the population because as things reopen and jobs let's just speculate for a moment jobs are plentiful i think you know if i'm one of those individuals you got to strike while the iron's hot because those jobs fill up if you kind of run through the benefits your ability to find the job you want is going to be in my opinion 
a lot harder. Yeah. And then, you know, the increased unemployment benefits aren't going to last forever, right? This is a short-term thing. So you have to keep that in mind too. So I think, you know, over the next couple of months, you're going to start to see that number come down significantly just because, you know, I think that you're going to have a lot of people that are going to come off of that after this, you know, short-term unemployment boost, um, benefits boost runs out. But And I'll be talking about this here like in like 60 seconds. Okay. So um, the last thing I want to talk about with kind of uh, market updates for listeners is first quarter earnings. So uh, Mark, do you would like to summarize just a very broad brush statement about how they've been going so far? I think better than people expected. Um, I would agree. Again, you know, this quarter didn't really account for everything that happened with uh, the whole coronavirus situation, but you know, these companies that have recurring revenue streams um, obviously are, have been outperforming the ones that haven't. Yep. Um, and I think you're going to see, you know, more and more people as it already was moving in that direction, move and companies move more to these subscription based revenue services and especially these big tech companies. You know, a lot of their stuff hasn't been um really affected that much you know you know it's amazing you know as we were kind of going through um the six week carnage in the market from mid-february to march 23rd i know behind the scenes for our clients we were analyzing in our opinion which companies were either actually having sales go up there were subsection of that which ones were maybe slightly down and as the carnage happened when the market bottomed on March 23rd, the names that kind of showed up on that list were the first to bounce back mm-hmm. as as the market recovered. And those names have significantly outperformed since that time period. Yeah, and it makes sense, right? I mean, I just quoted the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is positive for the year, and all the other industries yeah, are— Yeah, you said or, small, or, me, small um, caps are still down like 23%, you said? Yeah, yeah, all the and all the other indexes are, are negative for the year. International down 19%. So that's another thing that we talked about this last week a little bit, but that makes sense, right? You know, companies that aren't going to be as affected by this, obviously they would be expected to outperform. They deserve to trade at a premium. Right, right. All right, so I want to go on to tweets and research, Mark. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is um, a chart, and this chart is from a blog called Calculated Risk, okay? And now we're going to have this chart up uh, for listeners on our show notes on our website. So listeners, how you would obtain this chart is by going to our website, www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. You're going to hover over the podcast tab, and you're going to see a link for the show notes. Now, on this um, on this chart, it was done by Bill McBridge. And again, he runs the Calculated Risk blog. It shows the percent job losses since post-World War II recessions. Okay. And it shows, I'll just throw out some of the dates real quick. 1948, 53, 57, 60, 69, 74, 80, 81, 90, 01, 07, and now. Okay. And the worst of this chart is 2007 listeners. And the worst it got, again, to the peak job losses relative to peak employment was a dip of about six, six and a half percent. And that was 07. And it took somewhere in the avenue of about 75 months for employment to get back to where it was before. Okay. 
So this chart, listeners, shows that right now we are down 14% from peak employment. So it begs the question, is this going to be a V-shaped recovery or is this going to be more elongated and take 75, 80, 90 months for us to get back to this peak employment? I have my opinion. Mark, I'll let you start. I think that initially, <clears throat> or at least the first bounce, I guess, uh, is going to be sharp, and that's because of things reopening again. But I do think that, you know, it might take some time for these companies that, you know, are cutting jobs that are going to just determine, hey, we're, we're cutting our workforce and it's going to be for good. But I think the majority of it is, you know, these retail outlets, these these uh, restaurants that are reopening, I think you're going to see a, a quick rebound back because those people are going to be back to work. Um, so I think initially it's going to be sharper and uh, quicker. It's not going to take 75 months, but I do, in my opinion, think that you know we'll get back to full employment. And I have air quotes around that because that was around, what, 2.3 or 2.7 percent or something before something like all that. this COVID yeah. stuff happened. So I do think it's it is not going to take 75 months to get back to that 2.3 percent unemployment number. So you and I are in agreement with that. Yeah. Um, the thing I kind of want to throw out there and remind listeners is <clears throat> when the Fed met in the middle of April, they meet every six weeks and they make a statement. They came out and said specifically they are going to keep rates low until employment gets back to where it was before. That's a bold statement to go out there, Mark, and say that, you know, to kind of show your hand. And what's the old adage on Wall Street? You don't fight the Fed. Mm -hmm. And with how much money is out there in the marketplace at very low interest rates, I think it would be naive not for investors to acknowledge the tailwind that I feel the market's going to have for some time with this cheap money. Mm -hmm. Is that a good way of saying it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like what we talked about last time is that, you know, interest rates are the lowest they've been in a recession ever. And people aren't going to accept a half a percent. Right. There's no there's not. That money, money has to, to go. go somewhere. Right. It's going to find a home somewhere. Right. So listeners, I would encourage you to take a look at this chart. And I think it helps visually put this into perspective. So let me ask this question then. So just talking about this makes me think that, you know, going forward, is this going to be par for the course? Is the Fed always going to prop up the market like this they whenever have a, we have, they don't have a choice anymore? Yeah. So, so my so my question is, you know, are we are we never going to see like, a, you know, a 50 percent haircut in the markets again because the Fed's going to prop it up? And if interest rates remain this low, I mean, I would contend that that's going to be uh, unless the dollar completely crumbles. I would my opinion, I would say no. Yeah, because let's see the evolution of what's occurred in the past. Let's just call it, you know, 15, 20 years. So after the great financial crisis of 07, 08, and 09, they developed all of these programs to stabilize the monetary system and stabilize banks, right? So then you, you fast forward, I should take a pause there. They also did targeted bailouts to companies that they thought were systemically important to the US economy, i.e. 
automakers. Right. Okay. You know, fast forward to this one. They not only reinstituted all of those programs, they added more. And now you have the Fed not just buying mortgage bonds, not just buying their own treasury bonds. They're now starting programs to buy corporate bonds. And so where is this eventually going to go? It's the same playbook that Japan's using. And Japan is now buying stocks. So the Japanese version of the Federal Reserve is printing money and they're buying Japanese equities to prop up the market. It's only a matter of time before we go through some sort of economic shock or recession. And the Fed just comes out and says, we're reinstituting all these programs, including the bond buying program, and we're going to start buying stocks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the day the market's down 15% that economic shock and the Fed says that, what do you think is going to happen? Right? right. Can't fight the Fed. Their war chest is bigger than everyone else's. So I think going back to your point of, is the market now going to be reliant on the Fed to be the savior? Absolutely. Absolutely. The patient has now become used to the drug. You take that drug away, they're going to completely crumble. My right. opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think I, I appreciate you bringing that up because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I do think that that is now what the market is trained to do mm -hmm. in these extreme situations. Right. Yeah. All right. The next thing I want to throw out there, Mark, is looking back in history, what years look similar to how the S&P 500 has traded. So there's a chart from Fidelity that we posted to our show notes for listeners, and it compares a couple of years that started off very similar, okay? And it's gonna have maybe 15 or 20 that are gonna be overlaid. But the most um, common pattern is gonna be the year of 2007, okay? And when it kind of overlays the um, where how 07 ended and where we are at now, we definitely are on the road to recovery, but it still shows a lot of bumps and still short term corrections when you compare that. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to throw it out there for listeners is because they have experienced since the end of March a relatively straight up. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think it would be naive to think that it's going to continue at this pace and at this fashion. Mm -hmm. Is that a good way of saying it? Yeah, I agree. No, I'm glad you went that way with it because I wasn't going to chomp your head off a little bit on this because I don't like metrics like this to compare to different years. But you saved yourself. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna stir the pot a little bit with you there for a little bit, but you, you took it away from me. <laughs> ah, I love it. Okay, great. But no, I agree. I, I think that, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. No. No, it, it's not. Everything is not back to normal yet. And I think we've said this over the past couple of weeks that I don't think we're out of the woods yet. You know, it's not going to be a straight up recovery to all time highs in a month. Because um, you had a lot of FOMO. Fear of missing out right now in this yeah. market. And there's tons of research pieces and articles about it over the past week. And as that gets worse... You know, the people with the real money are going to realize that the people are buying because they have FOMO and then they're going to sell this thing off another 10 percent just to wipe them all out. You got right? it. And so, to just keep playing this game over and over, over and over. So listeners have to understand when you have what I would translate to be FOMO money coming into the market, 
Those are extremely weak hands. Yeah. Those are the same hands that sold in the middle or near the March bottom. So you had that money coming back in. It's not, you know, very long-term money in my opinion. And if we could have, say, three, four, five, six, seven percent correction in a quick time period, that's going to be the type of money that hits the sell button very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. So I got a couple more things, Mark. Next is early signs of pent up demand. Okay. So I'm just going to state some facts. Okay. Shanghai Disney is planning to open up on Monday. This was this past Monday. I did these notes over the weekend at 30% capacity. Do you know, Mark, that they sold out in minutes, the tickets? That's crazy. In minutes. Next, um, I want to throw out there that there's there's a gentleman who's a professor of finance at Peking University. His name is Michael Pettis, and I, I follow him on social media, on Twitter. And he noted on May 8th that Beijing street traffic is back to 80 to 90 percent from its peak before COVID outbreak. So what does that tell you about a country that was ahead of us in the evolution of the cycle of the virus? Yeah, and things are starting to get Start back to open back up. And then uh, another thing I want to throw out there, Carnival Cruises, okay? Their bookings surged, and I'm properly using the word surge, 600% when they announced reopening beginning in August. See, that one's crazy to me. I just Maybe it's a personal thing on my end, but I just feel like those things are Petri dishes for you know, this virus. I think there's a subsection of people and I don't disagree with you. Mm -hmm. I think there's a subsection of people that just love to cruise. Yeah. And that don't care. And that really, really badly need a vacation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And again, I'm very proud of myself because I use the word surge appropriately. I would say a 600% increase would be defined as surge. Yes. Financial news media. If any of you are listening, surge does not equal four or 5%. (laughs) All right, so next I have is a note from Bespoke Investment Group from May 8th, Mark. Individual investor sentiment is typically seen as a contrarian metric. And this week we saw more than 50% bears in the AAII investor sentiment survey once again. Bearish sentiment has now been above 50% in five of the last nine weeks. In this week, mark of 52.66% bearish reading was actually the highest level since April 2013. So let's analyze this for a second. The markets recovered off of the March 23rd bottom pretty impressively. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And we are sitting at a high, a seven-year high in investor bearish sentiment what's your take on that i mean my initial take would be you know in the medium to long term it's a contrarian indicator that we're gonna eventually keep recovering um a lot of disbelief in the rally right right a lot of cash on the sidelines yeah because it was kind of like we we talked about earlier is that you know we have the the smart money or people that have a lot of it you know, look at this stuff and they're like, well, if people are getting over optimistically bullish that when we're short term, we're going to sell this thing off and knock out some weak hands and we're going to buy at cheaper prices and they're going to keep doing this over and over and over again. But it works the opposite way, too. I know. Um, I mean, I know of people in our industry, Mark, that sold their clients out of equity exposure and have yet to get back in. Yeah. At some point, that money's got to come off the sidelines. 
And, you know, again, looking at this contrarian indicator, that just shows you the disbelief in the market and also tells me there's a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. Yeah. Climbing the wall of worry, so to speak. I love climbing the wall of worry. It's one of my favorite things. Yeah. yeah I don't disagree with you. All right, Mark, I'll send it back to you, sir. Okay, um, so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. This week's topic is Social Security. So for a long time, I think there's been a misconception on how Social Security works, number one. And people have this massive fear, Matt, that the program won't be around by the time they retire. I, I think that's very widespread, I would say. And Ben Carlson wrote a piece on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense, on May 7th on the subject. And again, I'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, but I think this that he makes a, a good argument for why he believes Social Security will be around for a long time. And after going through this, Matt, we'll see if you agree or disagree with the right. argument. Okay. So starting off, Ben says, many young people assume Social Security is either a Ponzi scheme or simply not going to be around when they reach retirement age. The Social Security Act was signed by FDR in 1935 as a response to the widespread unemployment and poverty created by the Great Depression. It was also seen as a way to help older Americans feel more secure in their finances. Yep. People are living longer, and many of the 73 million baby boomers are either already retired or getting to retirement um, or planning on retiring in the coming years. That's going to put some strain on the system. The Social Security Board of Trustees puts out an annual report with updated stats and estimates uh, to show how the program is holding up. They predict by 2034 there will be more retirees taking money out than workers putting money back in through payroll taxes. So it's understandable why millennials would be worried. There is a social security trust fund, but it's not like it sounds. It's not like it's completely gone by 2034. It will still be close to 80% covered by payroll taxes. They even estimated this out to 2094. A lot could change by then, but payroll taxes are still estimated to be covering 73% of payouts. At that time, At in that 2094. Time, in 2094. I mean, they're not telling you that. Right, right. You just, you just, keep, you just keep hearing, oh, it's going to run out of money at this date. Yeah, the fear-mongering. Yep. Um, so he lists three reasons why he really believes that you know Social Security is going to stick around. Number one is that too many people rely on Social Security. Yes. So the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimates that three out of ten elderly Americans would be more or less broke without the help of Social Security, and more than 10 million elderly Americans have been lifted out of poverty because of the program. The program also acts as one of the biggest sources of retirement income for many Americans. Roughly half of the senior citizens get at least 50% of their retirement income from Social Security. Around one in four seniors receive 90% of retirement income from this program. So a lot of people depend on this for income. And if you just wipe that away, not going to happen. Not gonna happen. Uh, number two, he says there are simple fixes to the program. The way your benefit is calculated is based on how much you earn over the course of your career and the age at which you begin taking benefits. To avoid angering the senior demographic, the government could increase the retirement age for younger people. 
or they could adjust the earnings cap or payroll taxes or the cost of living adjustment. Or the government could always cut back their spending in other areas. And in parentheses, he says, who am I kidding? They'll probably just pile on more debt. That's probably true. (laughs) going to happen. The third reason he lists is that government spending is only constrained by political will. So we literally, as we have uh, noticed over the past couple of months, cannot run out of money. Nope. And unless there's term limits, no one's going to make a tough decision. Right, exactly. And this was this is what he alludes to here in this in this third point. So the only way Social Security will not be there for millennials is if the government decides it's not a priority. The Social Security Trust Fund is really just a form of mental accounting. What politician in their right mind is ever going to try to take away retirement income from their voters? Ding, 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 ding. It's possible your benefit will be reduced in the coming years or you'll have to wait a little longer to start drawing distributions. But I feel fairly safe telling millennials they can plan on receiving something from Social Security in retirement. So I think this is a pretty good piece and pretty simple for people to understand that I think that it's one of those things where there's too many moving parts and it affects, affects way too many people to have this thing just ripped out from under everybody. I agree. And, you know, when this topic comes up for me and a client asks me about it, Mark, who's younger, I say at the end of the day, I feel we are going to move more to a needs based calculation. Yeah. And what that means for listeners is they'll have some sort of formula that your prior year AGI or your adjusted gross income, whatever that number falls in you get a certain percentage of your social security that you were due. So if you in the prior year made under, and I'm fictitiously picking numbers out of the air, $60,000, you get 100% of it. You made 75,000, you get 100% of it. But let's say you're over six figures, 100 grand, you start getting 90% of it. When you make 150, you get 80% of it to the point where say the lowest threshold is you get 50. Yeah. And in my opinion, that's where I think is the most, I guess, way of a politician not upsetting people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the puck's going. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not against that at all. I think that that is you know, pretty fair, in my opinion. So I don't I think see that, another way to do it. Yeah, <clears throat> no, I agree. OK, um, like we said before, we have three questions this week, all from Matt. So, Matt, thanks for sending in your questions and keep them coming. Thank you, sir. Um, The first one, Matt says, how concerned are you about the overall valuation of the market currently? Forward P.E. ratios for the S&P 500 are some of the highest in the last decade plus. And as stocks continue to rally, while large swaths are likely to continue to have challenges to earnings, these numbers will likely continue to rise. Does valuation even matter in the current Fed Reserve environment? And my First response to that is we talked about this a little bit last week, Matt, and I think we're in an environment that, you know, earnings don't matter as much right now, you know, compared versus what the Fed is doing, providing this liquidity to the market. So I think the focus is going to be more on the Fed and what they're doing rather than earnings and valuations at this point. The other thing I'll throw out there is there's a million and 10 different ways that you can measure richness of valuations it's not just price to earnings ratio right so you could look at price to earnings price to book and you know uh earnings before interest and taxes to total enterprise value and you can get three completely different 
valuations, right? So I think you just have to be careful on, you know, what you're using to measure the valuation, because my personal opinion is that PE ratios really don't do much for me. Um, you know, I guess they could be helpful, but that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, they're a data point. Yeah. <clears throat> I have two two comments to this, Matt, from my perspective. I agree with everything Mark said. First is we are, in my opinion, we are in a stock picker's market. This is not a market, in my opinion, that I think indexing is is going to do as well as an active manager. I'm biased. I'm an active manager. And I, I, I wish I could say more than that. Um, why, how happy I am right now and compared to the indices, but there are certain compliance things I, I can and cannot say on this. Um, next I'll say is this, when you look at how low interest rates are, okay, you're going to have a lot of money chasing very few areas. And I think that warrants in general a higher valuation. What yeah. do you think, Mark? No, I agree. I agree. So <clears throat> with that being said, I think that this is, it's dangerous to paint a wide stroke, wide stroke brush across the whole market, Matt. And I think this is more and more a stock picker's market mm -hmm. is the best way for me to kind of throw yep. that out there. What's the next question you had? Um, what are your thoughts on stocks with, in quotes, safe dividends or the dividend aristocrats to outperform the overall market if interest rates seem to be continually kept at or near zero? This is a dangerous one. Yeah. Clearly, not all companies will continue to pay out or raise the dividend, but do you expect money to flow towards more defensive stocks, which promise a yield well above the 10-year? And here's my thing with this, Matt. ExxonMobil is considered a in quotes, safe stock that pays a really good dividend. But look at their performance year to date or over the past two years or even over the past five years. So what people have to remember is that if let's say the dividend yield is, you know, 10%, right? And that's, you know, the dividend divided by the share price. If the stock is down 20% for the year, you're losing, you're losing money. So it doesn't really matter what the dividend yield is. So I think people have to be really, really careful with thinking that, you know, these companies that, that pay these awesome dividends are going to be safe from the market turmoil. And I personally don't believe that in my opinion. So I agree with everything you said, Mark. Matt, I'll throw this out there as well. The issue I have with some of these uh, names in that specific area is that... <clears throat> Again, general statement, their balance sheets are bloated with debt. Their growth rates in general are lower than a lot of other names. And that's a recipe for disaster. So you're trying to attract the investor just for the income, right? And how has that worked out, Mark, in general the past five years? Not good. If you compare, um, you know, maybe this is a chart that we can pull up. But if you compare, you know, growth to value, to momentum, to dividend yield, um, growth and momentum have significantly outperformed value and uh, companies that have higher dividend yields. Correct. Um, and that's the reason that... And a lot of it has to do with areas they're in, their growth rates, their right. balance sheet makeup. So I would be cautious. Yeah, me too. Me Good too. way of saying it? Mm -hmm. Okay. What's the next question? 
So the last one Matt has for us is, do you guys expect more inflation in the near future with the creation of trillions of dollars out of thin air in a matter of weeks to months? How do you feel about gold right now or something like Bitcoin? Not sure if I've ever heard you guys talk about crypto uh, on the podcast. You want me to go first? Go ahead. So um, inflation, in my opinion, is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, Matt. And you can't print this type of money and not have an, a side effect at some point. Now, with that being said, um, it's early. I'm going to give you my best educated guess. Um, I'm thinking minimum 18 to 24 months before you start to see major inflation. That's the earliest, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think it's more of a long-term thing than a short-term thing. But it thing. will happen. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to have to combat that with, with, with higher rates. Yep. Okay. Now, um, when it comes to, let's throw a category of alternative investments, the question of gold, crypto, et cetera. Um, I'm not a fan um, of gold in general. Um, you can't eat it. Um, and it's only worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. It doesn't make anything. Um, and so um, could it do well? Absolutely. You have central banks around the world who not only have been buying it, but continue to buy it. And if you have demand, again, it's all about supply and demand. Um, so um, I'll sit there and say, I think there are better avenues, um, but it could do well. But for me, it doesn't produce anything. You can't eat it. Not a fan. Mm -hmm. Is that okay for me to say? You think? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, when it comes to crypto, I would say this. In this current environment, my opinion, it is the same as going to Vegas, going to the roulette table, putting money on red or black. It's any it's anybody's guess how this is going to turn out. And you got to go into that knowing you're probably going to either do really, really well or you're going to do really, really bad. And so invest proportionally to your risk tolerance with me saying that. That's the best way for me to articulate it. Yeah. yeah. I'll turn no, it back I, to you. I agree. I'll, I'll make one point to try to stir the pot a little bit, I guess, do just, in the, just try to get bear, something baby. going. Um, I do think from like a diversification standpoint and trading different markets, I think it could be helpful to add something like a Bitcoin or a gold to the portfolio in addition to international equities, U.S. equities, small, mid, large, you know, commodities, you know, whatever you have. So I think from a diversification standpoint, it could help. But from a you know, from the other side of the coin too, diversification doesn't necessarily mean performance is going to be that much better or any better. At yeah, all. I think you, you know, if you're going to allocate that again, you have to allocate it proportionally to your aptitude to lose all the investment. Yeah. And that's my second point that I want to make is what at least what I've seen with newer products or newer types of investments, I think people tend to get very emotionally attached rather than if they just held an ETF or if they just held, you know, a couple stocks here and there. And I think that's what you have to be careful about with the Bitcoin crowd is that you get very emotionally attached and you don't follow your rules and you can lose your shirt. Yeah. And I'll say this, Matt, I mean, um, I want to give you some full disclosure, you know, on my Quotron, I do watch the price of gold. I do watch the price of Bitcoin on my Quotron. Why? Because it doesn't affect investor sentiment. And I do want to stay open-minded to the fact that if we start to see those names truly trade more in a safe haven fashion, and I'm talking a little bit more about crypto here, Matt, um, 
we I'd be open to it, you know. So um, I, I don't want to come across that. Listen, it, it's dead to me. I'm not going to revisit it. It is something that I watch on a daily basis, Matt. It's just right now with the um, volatility profile that especially crypto has for me, it just doesn't fit my risk reward. Yeah. No, I agree. And unless we, like you mentioned earlier, unless we see the dollar collapse, you know, I'm just, I'm just not interested right now, I think. And I think that there's just a lot of like mysteriousness to it, I guess, if that's the best way to say it. Like there's, I would say 85% of the blockchain, I completely just, it's over my head. I don't understand it. I don't see how it's going to be of better value than what system we have right now. And maybe that's, just me being naive but you know i just until you know the dollar is no longer the reserve currency of the world i just personally just don't don't get it what yeah it's and talking about the reserve be. currency i know we're starting to go down a rabbit hole but when uh times are uh, are not say um volatile so let's go back a couple of years you know there was talk that oh well the eu could um you know the euro could be a valid you know, it's going to be the, the world reserve currency, not the dollar. And, you know, that was out there for a while. Um, then the, the, the talk was at some point, could the yuan, uh, the Chinese currency, could that be uh, the reserve currency? Then you have these economic shocks. And Mark, where does all the money flow to? Dollar. Dollar. And so that just proves, in my opinion, hard data. The reserve currency being the dollar is not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you there. Well, thank you, Matt, for uh, sending in those questions for us this week. We always like that because, you know, we just read them as they are and it's not scripted. So you get our, our raw and honest opinion. I love I, I love I, lo- I love the Q&A time. Um, before we wrap up, Matt, anything else you want to leave? I do not, sir. Just um, listeners, just kind of. You know, recognize that the markets come up a lot off the March 23rd bottom. Um, I don't think we're completely out of the woods yet. Don't let your guard down. Invest for your risk tolerance goals and objectives. Um, and just know that the market can go down. Yes. Yes, it can. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in uh, and listening to the 46th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're new, we hope that you go back and check out our full catalog of episodes. And um, for those returners, thank you for joining us again. And we will be back with you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. 
All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.